start? Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. Hello, class. Uh, today uh, we are going to be presenting uh, policy, government, and security. Uh, we're going to talk about our antitrust trends and where we see the future going. Uh, my name is Phil Braspoli, and I'm accompanied by uh, Nicole Gizzi, uh, Juliana Grenchi, and Arthur Noller. Um, so yeah, we're going to start off with antitrust. Uh, let's get right into it. Great. So, Phil, as I know, you are the expert on antitrust. So I just want to ask you, what are the current trends in antitrust? Yes, yeah, so uh, for current trends in antitrust, um, right now there's a, a bunch of subtopics that kind of focus and encompass what antitrust is all about. Uh, for me, uh, big tech, small businesses, policy and strategy, healthcare, and financial institutions are all kind of the main areas where we see antitrust going. Um, big tech is essentially all of the, the biggest tech companies um, in in our society, current society. So the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples, all those companies um, that have a very, very large market share. And the, the main thing with antitrust is preventing monopolization. And the reason that these big tech firms get talked about in antitrust is because they have the most market control in their category. Um, small businesses, how that relates to antitrust. So again, small businesses kind of get knocked out as we become more technologically advanced and we we focus more on these on these big companies. A lot of these small mom and pop places are going out of business simply because they can't compete with the big tech companies. Um, and then policy and strategy. So kind of just looking at what our current policies are in our society. Um, you know, obviously the Sherman Act is kind of the main foundational uh, aspect of what antitrust is and how it was formed. Um, but the, the reality is, is that our modern policies and strategies aren't aligned with what our modern companies are doing. And because of that, we need to implement new uh, legislation in order to to make sure that these companies don't get too much power. Healthcare, this kind of focuses mostly on hospitals merging. Uh, we're, I'm going to talk more about uh, what what a COPA is later on. Um, but with with when it comes to healthcare, you know, a lot of the the antitrust has to do with you know medicine and these hospitals merging and not allowing us to get medicine at an affordable price. So. A lot of these these hospitals and other uh, medical institutions are merging to maximize their profits, and it hurts consumers like us. Uh, and then the same thing with financial institutions. Um, you know, these financial institutions are really focusing on eliminating what the consumer wants. So these financial institutions are really focusing on eliminating, you know, what you know, you and I might consider as being a good value. So the executives that that watch over the financial industry, they're focusing a lot of their time on making very similar policies between firms so that this way when they implement something or they make a change, it's much harder for us to target them and, and catch them for anti-competitive behavior. Thank you. Sure. All right, Phil. So you, you mentioned COPA earlier. Uh, can you ex explain what that is and uh, you know what the trend is with that? 
Yes, yeah, so a COPA is a certificate of public advantage. So this is like the modern way that um, states and gov local governments are governing um, mergers between two or more hospitals. So while this might seem like a good thing, states are having a very difficult time monitoring these COPAs. So like essentially it's it's designed to prevent hospitals from merging um but many it's it's a very difficult thing to monitor because there's so much that goes into what happens within a merge that it's very difficult for these unique companies because it's basically individuals like you and I just monitoring like paperwork uh and and making sure that there's no anti-competitive behavior going on but the way they get around it is they use a lot of fancy language that might not make sense to us um so a lot of us look past it and we don't really understand it so a lot of these big uh medical firms they're able to merge and essentially we can't really touch them so essentially what i think is that i think we need a new organization to be formed that specifically focuses on um what a what a hospital deal will do to the local environment and jobs because if you think about it um when a hospital merges you know not everybody is keeping their job you know they have to lay off some employees um while the company might grow they're not going to keep the same amount of of size that they that the one firm would have had on its own um so this factor could play a role in u.s enforcement agencies decisions on what transactions deserve their resources for investigation. Thanks, Mel. Sure. Okay, so I have a good question for you. Um, what is the product life cycle that we are starting to see with a lot of bigger companies? Yeah, so really kind of relating back to big tech again, a lot of these companies are making products that replace essential goods that we use every day. So um, for example, like the iPhone, you know, it pretty much replaced all phones and now we can't really live without a cellular device or, you know, mostly the iPhone. The iPhone, I believe, makes up more than 50% of the of the cellular phone population. And for that reason, you know, we're, we're kind of, we, we see that Apple has the monopoly control for that category. So where I kind of see us going with this is, you know, there's going to be this sort of neutrality where companies are only making goods to replace goods that we use every day. Um, so I think that companies will be able to cover the world with data centers and prevent smaller firms from competing in the market. So, for example, if a, if a company creates a new product that, you know, is a good idea, you know, but they don't have the the money or the market or the market share for that, um, they're going to get taken over by Apple and Apple's going to say, oh, that's a good idea. We're going to implement that too right now. So I predict that Apple and Microsoft will eventually transform from consumer products companies to consumer lifestyle companies where they knock all competitors out of the market by creating their own versions of essential goods. Thank you, Phil. That was really informative. Sure. So based on everything you've discussed and all of your other knowledge on the topic of antitrust, 
Do you see any sort of regulation in our country's future? And if you do, what does that look like? What do you yeah. believe the plan is? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that we definitely need more regulation. I think the FTC and the Department of Justice definitely do as good of a job as they can. But the reality is, is that money is power. And, you know, with Apple becoming the, the most valuable company in the world, how are the FTC and the DOJ going to only regulate what data Apple collects or, or what data Google collects from us? So I think establishing an anti-monopoly principle um, would be a very, very profound thing here. Um, so I think that the first thing we need to identify is what are the potential risks in a data-driven economy? So, you know, once we identify these risks, um, you know, we know that data, data analytics are a primary source for financial firms, sports teams, local businesses, and just general world trends. You know, companies aren't going out there saying, oh, we're going to design this just because we like it. They're going to make a product and do something because it's it's has a statistically significant factor that will get people to buy it. Um, so by targeting this issue at the state level, I think we're guaranteed to see improvements quickly and trend in the right direction. So I think um, states need to really focus on creating a sort of organization that targets this uh, anti-competitive behavior um, and and just try and wipe out the monopolies and, and see what they can do quickly or else they're going to get too wealthy and too powerful for us to handle it. Definitely. Thank you. Sure. All right, Phil. So one last question for you. And I just I just wanted to ask, what is culture capture? You've uh, yeah. written about it before. Yeah. Yeah. So culture capture is this idea where public officials are implementing practices that are pro industry. So essentially, it appears that there are various antitrust officials who develop interpersonal relationships with senior competition officials. Now, I know that might sound like confusing, but it's basically just a fancy way of saying that um, antitrust officials are are kind of having these awkwardly friendly relationships with heads of these firms. So because of these relationships, it's likely that many of these firms have specific ties to lawyers, consultants, civil servants, lobbyists, and judges. Uh, and because of that, they're not a they're whatever cases or or lawsuits that are being brought up, they're not they're not going through. Um, so we're able to conclude that there's a risk that uh, anti-interventionist positions, arguably held by antitrust practitioners, may exert a disproportionate influence on the mindset of these officials. So what I would suggest is, based on the trends, the current trend, is um, the FTC and the DOJ need to implement a new antitrust practice that specifically focuses on adopting more aggressive measures on these uh, on these financial institutions. And if that means that they have to go into the actual institution and look over their paperwork and and who they're who they're you know working with and what conversations are being made, then then that might be have that might have to be done. Um, so um, it needs to be based on an Atlanta, excuse me, an analytically sound fact-based framework whose primary focus is to create more competition and destroy rational actors trying to maximize their own well-being. 
Uh, so with that, uh, that is our part on antitrust, and I'm going to pass it over to Nicole now, who is going to talk about cybersecurity. So, Nicole, as a distinguished expert on cybersecurity, how would you define cyber, um, like cybersecurity as a whole, and what are the current trends? So, for those who may not know, cybersecurity is basically being safe on the internet and avoiding any type of hacks that you can get remotely, again, or malware, anything like that. Cybersecurity is basically the online version of attacks in real life. So basically someone, for example, the easiest um, form of cybersecurity um, in the forms of an attack is a fish and not like the swimming fish, the fish email. And phishing emails are basically fake emails that are supposed to be posing as legit people asking for something and half the time it's credit card information or personalization that's not uh, due to money. And basically what the attacker will do is that they will persuade you to give you that information and think that you are the company in question, but really they're not and they're going to use all that against you and take either all the um they'll take your credit card and go on a shopping spree or take your bank account information and that all your so that is a basic definition and example of what cybersecurity is and how it affects like everyone so regarding some of the trends i believe the biggest one besides phishing which i mentioned earlier is remote working and that is mostly because of the incidents we've seen with COVID-19 and people not being in the office anymore. And with remote working, we are all connecting to company servers wirelessly, such as the VPN. Currently, when I work for my co-op, I don't go in the office. I am still remote. So every day in order to see all the company information, I have to log in again. And I'm doing that on campus Wi-Fi. And we don't know exactly if campus Wi-Fi is the most secure uh, network to be connected to, but it's the only option we have on campus, obviously. So in a sense, that poses a risk because if someone hacks the Wi-Fi server and I'm still connected to the company VPN, they could get all that personal information from my company and that would not be good. And that's just one of the many risks that remote working poses, like wire not being able to trust wireless connections, making sure you have a good internet connection and just making sure that you don't leave your devices unattended because if you do and it's not shut down and secure, someone could walk by and either steal your laptop or even just find certain information on it that you don't want to be sharing to random people. So that's a little bit about remote working and some of the risks that they pose. Another one I would want to talk about is the Internet of Things, IoT, evolving. And I want to talk about this in the sense of smart devices, such as digital watches, digital refrigerators, where you could put literally your shopping list on there and send it right to your phone, um, stuff like that. And there's more trends with attacks with that specific uh, area because one, there is not a, a really, um, there's not really a, an efficient way to connect antivirus software to these devices because of how small they are and they do not have um, big enough storage units for the actual digitalization where we could actually find easier ways to secure them. So for example with a smart refrigerator you can't just plug it into a wireless router to transfer all that information securely. It's literally connected into the wall through your actual refrigerator plug-in. 
So it is hard to keep these things secure because um, if someone hacks, for example, Samsung uses smart refrigerators. If someone hacks Samsung's internal um, hardware and finds all this information through like all the refrigerators and stuff, they could literally just the one click of a button take all that info from you. And that's not something that you could really secure yourself because the storage space within the refrigerator is so small because it's supposed to be not only just taking your list down, but it's also trying to keep your food cold. So one thing that I think could really benefit is if they make larger space to be able to install any virus software into the devices that are connected to the refrigerators and even just making um, the storage bigger. Another one that I want to touch on is ransomware. And for those who don't know, ransomware is basically hiding malicious code into something. And then once the recipient finds out about it, they are basically blackmailed into giving a large sum of money to retrieve that information back. And you're seeing that a lot with a lot of corporate companies nowadays. Um, a lot of their information, you're going to see a lot of uh, data breaches and stuff like that. They use ransomware to do that. And it's, it's very alarming because a lot of consumers, they trust these companies with their information, like banks and shipping companies and like even just personal like shopping companies like stores people will trust these companies that they will keep their information secure that they give over the internet like credit cards um, emails phone numbers addresses and someone could easily input a malicious code and be able to capture all the information and the company would have to basically pay a large sum of money if they want to get that back before it gets on dark web for sale so that's another thing that needs a little more awareness is how to stop more of these ransomware attacks from happening and especially how to keep these companies and their security more secure. Because if they don't have a strong enough security, it's going to put a lot of distrust between the consumer and the company. Another one that kind of ties into COVID a little bit is the use of cloud services. That's been a huge cybersecurity trend as of recently. And that is because we have all decided that it's a lot easier for um, actual desktop space to basically store pictures and documents in the cloud because it doesn't take up as much memory on like personal devices like phones and laptops. And the one thing that can cause a lot of cybersecurity issues with this is are the settings configured properly within the cloud? And um, <clears throat> When these settings are not in, when these settings are not configured properly, it's an easy way for a hacker to just sneak right in and take all that information for themselves. And that's the one thing we want to ensure is that we have secure settings. We don't want a hacker to just sneak right in and be able to wipe out all that information, years of pictures of family memories and stuff like that. Just for an example. Um, we trust the cloud to like store everything properly so we don't have to keep it on our desktops, but it's going to be hard to do that if we can't, um, the companies that we use for these cloud services like Apple, if their um, services are not secure enough to hold on, hold on to all this data and encrypt it properly, what's the point of using it? And then I touched on this a little earlier with the definition of cybersecurity, but Phishing has become one of the most common areas of trend with cybersecurity. 
and that is because it is one of the easiest ways to convince a person that they are legit and that they you could trust them with giving away your personal information. And with phishing, there has actually been a lot of attacks within academia and healthcare as of recently. We haven't really seen that much, but with the rise of COVID and being at home, there's been a big push with that. And the best example, as a, again, I'm going to say it, emails. You're going to see it all the time. Someone's going to show a fake bank account statement and it says that you owe a large sum of money um, if you don't send over your credit card number to pay this off like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take something from you and some people they are scared because they don't want to have to pay a large sum of money so they're literally gonna give that information over because they read the email too quickly without analyzing the headers the footers the subject and even just like who the email is originally from it will just say the name of the person or the company but they won't actually read the email um, address because that's where you could easily find if it's a real email or not and they will hand over their credit card information and the next thing you know they take all this money from you without warning and you now have to go and call your credit card company and tell them i've been fished i need to cancel my credit card so that's the one thing that we need more um, awareness for is cybersecurity phishing training because we don't want one single person to affect it for an entire company. Because if one person gets an email and they click on the wrong link or, or a malicious link and this person gets a hold of all this personal information. So Nicole, do you think we're going to see any changes in the laws for these kind of crimes? And do you think the punishments could become more severe as the years go on? I personally know that the White House has in task a task force to keep an eye on all these cyber attacks and maybe draft up regulation, but I don't see that happening for another couple of years only because I don't think that they are really focusing on the cyber attacks as much as they have been with other issues like gun violence and just war in general. There has been more emphasis on that rather than cybersecurity, which is kind of alarming to me, especially because of how the rise in the attacks that are happening around the globe and even just in cities alone are happening. Like even like, for example, like Uber, they were hacked. There was some person, an 18 year old kid, um, he didn't, ex he didn't um, expose who he was, but he claimed responsibility for the attack. And he had access to all this personal information for the customers of Uber. And you don't want that to happen. You don't want some person that you don't know or don't even trust to have a hold of your private information. And it just shows that, like, even the companies that are withholding this information are not securing it properly if this person was able to hack it so easily. So that's another thing. If there's more... I hate to say it, but if more cyber attacks happen, maybe there will be more of a push to get the laws enacted faster and regulate them. But I just don't see it happening, given the current state of the law. Definitely. Um, and I do have another question because you've talked about the trends in cybersecurity. You've talked about the common cyber attacks, um, possible regulation. Now, what exactly do cyber criminals gain from these attacks? Do they benefit? And if so, does the benefit outweigh following the law, for example? So I'm going to use Uber as an example again. So to basically summarize the incident, 
a hacker easily was able to infiltrate Uber's systems because Uber, they, the hacker basically said that Uber's security policies were ineffective and they were able to gain access um, by posing as an information technology employee from a current Uber employee. And they believed that the person was legit when they really weren't and they gave up all this information and the passwords to get into the, to the system. So, um, I think that the top three reasons that someone would want to carry out an attack like this are, one, for the clout, because if I hacked Uber, it'd be like, oh, hey, I'm the person that hacked Uber, like, you know, like, all the attention would be on you. That's one thing. They, people love clout nowadays. Second of all, who wouldn't want to get a hold of sensitive info if they had it? Um, it's not fair it's not ethical but there's some people in this country in this world that hey they want to hack to get a hold of all this information because they could say that they hold it and even worse they can go sell it on the dark web and some other person who you wouldn't want to trust is going to have a uh, they're going to pay a large sum of money for that information and you don't know where it's going to come from next you're going to get a credit card bill from some company in Canada, so to say, that you've never even heard of. And it's because, one, the person either used that information that they gained from that attack to their personal advantage, or they gained it from a dark web uh, transaction and don't want that kind of thing happening anymore. And lastly, I want to say that um, it's not really the first thought when a cyber attack happens, but it also proves that in this case, Uber security is not secure at all. It's very weak. If this person really believed that this IT worker really wanted to get access to this information, they already didn't. The first thing they should have done was ask for an ID, a badge, employee number, proof that this person actually works for Uber, um, stuff like that, background check, check their LinkedIn if they actually exist as a person. Because if first thing I would do, I would check to see if this person worked at Uber. The easiest way to find out. If they won't give you an employee ID, double check Uber, double check LinkedIn. Um, so, so Nicole, um, you, you've talked about this a little bit earlier, but I, I'm just curious. What, what do you, what would you say is the number one way that the average person can keep themselves safe? Like, what's the num what's the best first step? The best first step: secure passwords. Have 14 characters at least. Use different numbers, letters, lowercase, capitalize. Even use special characters and numbers. You want. You don't want someone to be able to crack your passwords to your sensitive info that easily. You And yes, you may not be able to remember them all, but use a password manager. Make sure that's secure. Write them down on a piece of paper and put it somewhere where no one's going to find it. Because if you don't remember, it's going to be there for you because you remember where it is. But that's the one thing I would definitely say. Make sure you have secure passwords. And always, I'm going to stress this because phishing is one of the biggest things I've dealt with in the industry. Examine every link that you want to click on before actually clicking on it because nine times out of ten it's going to be legit, but that other time it's going to be a malicious email. And with that one click of a link and before you can even X out of it, someone's going to have all of your information. Just that easy nowadays. Thanks, Nicole. Thank and you. with that, I'm going to hand it off to Arthur who's going to talk about cyber warfare. Yes, so delving deep into your area of expertise, Arthur, what is cyber warfare? 
Uh, to put it simply, it's the use of computer technology to disrupt activities of a state or an organization, uh, especially through information systems. Um, and usually this is, you know, to gain some sort of strategic edge. Uh, and, you know, we see this in a number of different ways. It's actually very similar to, uh, you know, common cyber crimes, by the way. Um, we see things like phishing, malware, uh, DDoS attacks. Uh, a lot of times, you know, countries will use use uh, cyber attacks for espionage and uh, sabotage as well. Um, yeah, recently, we've seen, uh, you know, cyber capability that's able to take down electrical and power grids um, and just stuff like that. Uh, similarly, they also can use it for mass propaganda, uh, really just a number of ways. Really, it's just to disrupt uh, the normal flow of things in cyberspace for a country. Thank you. All right, Arthur, so I'm going to ask you, uh, what are other countries a threat to us at the moment? And when it comes to cyber warfare, you know, what countries exactly are a threat? Yeah, no, absolutely. So right now, the United States is the number one power in overall cyber secure, cyber warfare, uh, to be clear. Um, but it is very competitive and there are a number of countries that are actually fairly large threats uh, to the United States. Uh, number one, probably being China. Uh, Russia is close behind. And uh, actually, although we are the number one power, there are some aspects of cyber warfare and uh, certain capabilities that both countries like China and Russia are actually edging us out, specifically in things like uh, espionage and being able to spread uh, misinformation on the internet and, and trying to get into other servers. Um, yes, no, they're, they're quite frankly just more effective than us. Um, and it's not even just countries, actually. Uh, I'll, I'll get into this more later, but uh, quite frankly, there, there are independent actors out there um, that could easily carry out cyber attacks on the United States. And, uh, you know, in reality, there, there's no barrier into entry into cyber warfare. And we're actually beginning to see a lot of independent actors in global conflicts, um, mainly when it comes to other countries, though. The number one we we thing we see is it's really just like capability and intent. So obviously the United States right now, um, in our current conflicts right now, we're not exactly dealing with too many you know high cyber cyber powerful nations. Um, so we're typically on the defensive, while other countries like Russia, for example, are very much on the offensive, and China as well, uh, based on you know research and things that we've seen going on. Uh, we've actually seen China and Russia have actually moved some of their units that have focused on defense more towards attacks. And uh, yeah, we're seeing that a lot more often now. Okay, I have another question. So how does cyber warfare actually relate to the current crisis that we've seen with Russia and Ukraine? That's a great question. And it's actually really fascinating to look at. So. I would describe the conflict between Russia and Ukraine as almost a case study of what the future of warfare is going to look like, between, especially between developed nations uh, that have cyber capability. Um, it's stuff that we're seeing right now is unprecedented. They're, I mean, they're taking down uh, power grids. Right now, they're, they've been trying to shut off uh, what's Kievstar. It's like the largest telecommunications company through, as you mentioned earlier, phishing attacks. And uh, things like that. They've they've used a lot of different ways trying to just take down the server. And Ukraine's been fighting back with with cyber defense, and it's been in, incredible to watch. Um, you know, we we haven't really seen this before, so it, it's pretty interesting to see. Uh, and 
some of the things we're seeing are almost unimaginable. So uh, not only has Ukraine obviously has been on the defensive and they have lost service in a lot of areas, but uh, they've actually been able to fight back. In fact, so there's there's this thing they call the the IT army, and it's a group of volunteers of around 260,000 people that essentially work to uh, protect servers in Ukraine and also counterattack on Russia. Uh, about a month ago, I'd, I'd say, they actually were able to take down the Moscow Stock Exchange for an entire day. And that just goes to show that really, you know, cyber war, it's very unpredictable. It's very complicated and it's getting better, more intricate and advanced every day. So it's just something really incredible to see. Um, and also, obviously, during wartime, for both civilians and the military, the most important thing is communication. I mean, if you're in an active conflict zone, you're going to be able want to be able to call someone, text someone, what you would normally do, especially if you're trying to make sure your loved ones are safe. And same thing with the military. They're trying to make sure that they're, you know, strategically aligned and they're going to be able to uh, defend themselves or attack effectively. Um, and I think that's really what we're going to see is in the future of warfare. They're going to, it's just going to be attacks on telecommunications and internet service and things like that. So, yeah. That was a great answer. Thank you. And I actually have a follow up to that. So I had talked a little bit about with cybersecurity, how many corporate in America are experiencing many different types of cyber attacks, leaving a bad taste in a lot of consumers' mouth. So my question for you is, should corporate companies in the U.S. be working with the military in IT to ensure that their system is safe and the response would even be? Yeah, um, obviously my, my answer is going to be absolutely they should. Um, and I, I believe they do in a way that the government obviously has with our major telecommunications companies must have some sort of contact with them and things like that and with their networks and stuff. We're in a good position right now. We we are very capable and we are very able to defend our networks. But I, I think looking at this conflict between Ukraine and Russia, I think it's a, it's a great time to analyze ourselves and analyze, you know, what, what are our weaknesses and what are what would hypothetically what would happen if this server went down if this happened and you know i think everyone just they, they need to be collaborating um even with with kevstar as i mentioned before to just go back to that for a second they've been working with the uh, the ukrainian government hand in hand um and you know besides obviously the this, this volunteer army that they have and uh some of their employees who, who are just in in contact with the government uh it's definitely important and it's typically something that in you know a long time ago we we weren't normally seeing, but now it's probably becoming one of the most prevalent ways uh, of warfare. So to keep it simple, definitely they should be. Great responses. All right, Arthur. So my question now to you is, are there any current advancements in cyber warfare that are noticeable? And are we heading maybe toward more of a technological thing or are things gonna be kind of staying the same for the foreseeable future? Oh no, it's it's getting more advanced every single day. Uh, the number one trend, if I'd, I'd have to say, or I don't even know if I can call it the number one yet, but one of the more exciting ones and one of the ones that uh, is definitely becoming more relevant is the use of AI and uh, machine learning in both cyber defense systems, as we've we've talked about before, but also in in physical um, you know weapons that we've seen. I mean, they're they're starting to roll out. You can look some of these up. They're really cool to look at, actually. But they have. Um, automated weapon systems, automated vehicles, um, just just things that, you know, are, it's great because they're able to do things that the human brain cannot do as efficiently. It's making things faster, 
automated, uh, sometimes often safer, but at the same time, there are a lot of risk factors that come along with it. Uh, mainly being that because AI is so new and we still don't have exactly the best understanding of it, uh, there's a lot of unpredictability. And as you could imagine, the one thing you would not want in a weapon system is unpredictability. That's terrifying. Also, obviously, there's a chance that someone could breach the system and, and gain control of something like that, and that, that would be bad too. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as things be, keep becoming more advanced and we're seeing new technologies roll out, um, it's, it's interesting to see the way that they're going. They've just invested um, a large sum of money into AI as well as more into cybersecurity as well. Um, and the, the biggest thing they're trying to do right now is being able to implement soldiers with these automated weapon systems and they're really just testing it out and seeing how it works. And I think in the next couple of years, we're gonna see some really big leaps in how warfare is conducted more than we've already seen in the past couple. So, yeah. And I think on that note, I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Juliana for political radicalization. Okay, Juliana. To start off, I want to ask you, for our audience, what are the different levels of the radicalization process and what process facilitates it? So I think it's very important to first understand the definition of political radicalization and actually understand what it is. And I just want to say political radicalization is the process where individuals and groups adopt views that just become increasingly more radical and they oppose what we kind of accept as the social norms, the political norms, and the religious norms, and just delving into the different levels. Um, if you think of the levels of radicalization as a pyramid, at the very bottom of the pyramid, you have the most amount of people, and those people are the sympathizers. They agree with the cause, but they don't want to act violently, and these people are comparative to, say, a crazy relative at Thanksgiving dinner. They have so many thoughts, but they're not necessarily going to act on those thoughts, and they're not going to participate in any sort of riot or any sort of other radical action. And then slightly above it, with a slightly smaller amount of people, you're going to find supporters. So these people justify the illegal and violent actions. And this includes people that participated in the Stop the Steal campaign. So just people that kind of spread their agenda through any sort of means necessary, whether it be violent or nonviolent. And then slightly above them is the activists. So like I said before, definitely less amount of people. And these are legal nonviolent actors and they are the support network. And they also help recruit people for the movement, maybe not intentionally. And we see this a lot with news personalities because news personalities, while maybe not intentionally trying to mobilize people, do actually do so. And at the very top level, at the top of the pyramid, you have the least amount of people. And these are the radicals. So they're illegal and violent actors, and they can be seen in society through any sort of violent action. And it was actually seen during the January 6th insurrection, which I'll talk more about later, where these individuals participated in just an action overall that attempted to overthrow um, part of a governmental decision. So they're people that are actively getting out there. And the way that people move up this pyramid is through the radicalization process. And this process has four basic steps. So the first step in this process is 
known as the pre-radical stage. So this is when a person joins and begins to identify with a group and organization. And this is their first exposure to radicalism. Then from there, they begin to the self-identity step. So this is where they start to believe and accept the beliefs and views held by a group and organization as they kind of continue down that path. And then the next step, the third one, is indoctrination. So at this step, the individual is groomed by the group and organization, and this further pulls them down the path of radicalization and eventually leads to the fourth step, which is terrorism. So this is when the person actually begins to commit terrorist acts and actually like physically participates. And that's just a very like brief overview of the different levels and how the people get to that point. Thank you. That was very deep. All right. So m my question, I I'm just curious, what what's the role of misinformation in political radicalization and uh, how, how are we seeing that today? So misinformation is actually the driving force of political radicalization, because once you get one piece of information, it's very easy for a group to pick up on that and then run with it. So this was seen, I mentioned before, the January 6th insurrection. And what happened was a group of radicals interrupted a joint session of Congress while they were actively affirming the election results. And through the process of their actions, they actually caused $1.5 million worth of damage to the US Capitol. And this led investigators and the FBI to get involved and they began making arrests and they, um, wound up arresting a couple hundred people for resisting arrest or assaulting members of the media, destruction of government property, conspiracy, and the FBI even went as far to create a most wanted section on their website, trying to gain information about what happened. And they discovered that misinformation was a very big component of what drove these radicals to act in the way they did. So um, this also comes into play with the Stop the Steal campaign. So that little bit of misinformation where people were claiming that the election was um, fraudulent and that President Joe Biden actually did not win and that um, former President um, Donald Trump did win, that piece of information and the fact that um, it was driven by major proponents in the political sphere that misinformation just led to a whole nother level of radical actions. All right, Juliana, so my question for you is, what do you think is the main driving factor for this extremist behavior? And do you think we're heading closer to a separated society in the near future? So I mentioned before misinformation. I do think that is a very big proponent behind extremist behavior. And I also do feel like the there's three other ways. So for starters, people always want to find their place in the world. And a lot of people do take advantage of those individuals while they're vulnerable. So if, say, I was looking for a new group of friends and I was just walking around campus and someone came up to me and was like, hey, join our club. I didn't know what it was about, maybe. And I just went to the club meeting and it turns out they have views that are slightly uncomfortable for me. And this is the only group of people I'm exposed to. So through that, I kind of gain my friends through that. And that's just kind of a very mundane example. It happens on a much larger scale out in the real world. But 
once you find that group of people that treat you like you're their friend and they treat you like you belong, you begin to identify with the group. And then that kind of leads you towards what their beliefs are. And I do believe that's one of the major proponents. I do also believe that the environment you grow up in also has a very big role in this. So if you typically grow up in a household with strong religious beliefs, chances are you're either going to be very involved in those religious beliefs in your adult life or you're going to rebel against them. And this is kind of where people begin to diverge from the beliefs that they held as a child because your parents do play a very big role in how you're raised. So if your parents are very dead set on one view, you're either going to also be very dead set on that view and might be even more extreme or you're going to be very dead set against that view. And this kind of leads the division within society because it's very polarizing. And I do believe that a third driving factor behind extremist behavior is a different sense of ethics. So my truth is different from your truth, which is different from Arthur's truth, which is different from Nicole's truth. And once you believe something, that becomes what guides you. That becomes right and wrong. So from there, everyone is going to defend what they believe in. It's very simple in that respect. And I do believe because of that, everyone's sense of ethics is different. So some people might think that these extremist behaviors are what is right and what needs to be done, even if others do not. So I do believe those are some driving factors. Okay, so on the topic of, of right and wrong, do you think we have a go-to trustworthy source for news and just general beliefs? I do believe that depends on the person because every news source has some sort of agenda. Every news source is run by at least one individual that has very extreme beliefs, and it's very hard to find an unbiased news source in today's society. So say person A has more conservative beliefs, they're going to lean more heavily towards news sites that report more conservative actions and beliefs and kind of discusses what they believe in, whereas more liberal individuals are going to kind of find the opposite. They're going to find more liberal newspapers, like news channels, things like that. And I do believe that because of that, everyone's beliefs do kind of taint the truth a little bit. So there's one opinion and there's another opinion, and then there's what actually happened. So I do believe it kind of depends on what you're looking for, because what I might deem trustworthy is very different from what you might deem trustworthy. One final question for you. Do you believe that there is one central individual that represents a radical group, has the face of the group, so to say? This also kind of depends. It's a very interpretive kind of aspect of political radicalization because there are leaders of different groups that unintentionally or intentionally do become the face of the party where a lot of people think of this radical group and they think of that one person. However, that one person's beliefs do not represent the entire group. Because if you have a group of 1,000 people, not everyone is going to think the same way or believe the same exact things. So that one person might speak for the group, but you have to also acknowledge that the group has more um, different levels, if that makes sense. So if you have, say, a liberal group of people, there's not just 
extremely liberal individuals, there's also moderates. And then there's also conservative liberals. And same with the conservative side of things as well. So I do believe that the news also kind of chooses one person in every situation, and they kind of formulate an opinion based on their views and what the group actually stands for. So I do believe it might not be intentional, but a lot of times it does happen, although that one person is not strictly representative of that group of people. That was a great explanation. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thank you, Juliana. And that is our uh, conversation on policy, government, and security. Uh, thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you in class. Thank you.